You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. I don't have to tell you that we live in a culture defined by accumulation. We accumulate things, don't we? If you've looked in your closets lately, you know this. We accumulate things, and we get things, and we get more things, and then we get storage rooms to keep our things in, and then we get insurance to cover our things. (laughs) Maybe you're thinking about what you've accumulated If you have children, you probably have accumulated a lot of toys, video games, sports equipment. Grown-ups accumulate things as well. Some people love education and accumulate different degrees from different institutions. Others accumulate clothes. Others accumulate guns or golf clubs. Some of us like to accumulate guitars or books even, if you know me well. Some of you collect tools. Some of you, perhaps, back in the day, collected precious moments figurines. Remember those? I see a few smiles. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. It's okay. It was a thing at one time. The point is that we live in a culture that reinforces and encourages and creates this norm where if you're not accumulated, accumulating, like you're not living life. If you aren't getting more stuff, you're not living. And we go on social media and we scroll through and we see advertisements. And those advertisements tell us we need to do what? We need to accumulate something else. And then we get past the advertisement and we see pictures of the things our friends have accumulated. And we remember, wow, they've accumulated those things, but I haven't accumulated those things. And guess what that means? It means I need one of Not just one of those, but perhaps two, and maybe the upgraded model. Amen? You with me? We know know what we're talking about. Like, this this is the American dream, isn't it? Stuff. More and more and more stuff. Well, the American dream, at one level, if that's the way we define it, isn't original to us. Believe it or not, in the first century, people accumulated things. Not everyone was able to accumulate wealth. In fact, most people weren't. But there were other things that were prioritized. Some, for some, it was education. For some, it was particular philosophical schools. And the Apostle Paul addressed this sort of, again, culture of accumulation that shared some things in common with us, a sense of competitiveness. Look what they have. Can we have more? Look what they have. Can we obtain something different? The Apostle Paul addressed that culture of accumulation with some questions. And he invites us to ask one particularly crucial question because if we stop to think about this culture we have, this this is part of our identity as modern, western, 21st century, middle-class Americans. Part of our identity is accumulators. 
We're defined by what we have, aren't we? We are defined by what we have. And the Apostle Paul, to that, asks several crucial questions, and he invites us to reflect on one particularly crucial question. What if we were defined by what we give instead of by what we have? Bottom line's a question today. What if we were identified? What if we were defined by what we give and not only by what we have? Now, see how we get there. Got to take a look at the text. Consider this identity of accumulation in first century Corinth. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in part to deal with some faction. Have you ever been a part of a church faction? <laughs> don't raise your hand. Churches have factions, don't they? It's kind of like there's this group and there's this group and this group wants that kind of carpet and this group wants that kind of other, you know, just you know the kinds of things that groups and churches subdivide around. Well, that's not new either. That happened in Corinth. In fact, Paul says halfway through the first chapter, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, chapter 1, verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement. Imagine that, asking everyone in a church to be in agreement. <laughs> all of you be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you. Tall order, Paul. But that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. And you know, somebody right now is thinking, Wait till I get a hold of Chloe's people. <laughs> it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, that's Peter, or I belong to Christ. And Paul is sort of just letting them know that he's in the know, isn't he? That there are some divisions and there are some factions and they've really gotten to kind of a formal state and they have, they've divided. And one of the ways that you could map, there's a lot of ways you could actually map these divisions. You can't, it's a, little, it's a little bit difficult to kind of get it super clear cut. As he goes through this very long letter, there are a variety of issues over which they have conflict. By the very end of it, we find some of them are rejected. One of the factions has to do with eschatology, with last things, what happens when Jesus comes back. Some of them reject or deny the resurrection of the body, and some of them, it appears, affirm it. Here, Paul defines the divisions in relation to leaders. So there are different ways that he would articulate the divisions that they experience. There are different aspects of the conflict, and one of those had to do with which one of the apostles they attached to. Like, which one of the pastors is your favorite? And for some of them, they liked Apollos. And why did they like Apollos? Well, he was trained. Apollos is the guy who had the degrees. He was the PhD. He was trained in rhetoric. He was a, 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 a trained, skilled public speaker. When Apollos preached, you just knew you were going to hear something compelling. And others maybe were attached to Paul. At least that's the way Paul portrays it for us. And Paul, we find out later, he wrote really nice letters, but his personal presence was a bit of a letdown, apparently, at times. But Paul was the scrappy church planner. I mean, this was a guy who had given up a life of sort of climbing the religious ladder and a life of networking and relationships and power and authority and all of the things. Like, 
He was the guy who was advancing above his peers. And he gave all that up for poverty to go plant churches all over the Mediterranean. He's the scrappy church planner. He's the countercultural guy. He's the one that, you know, if you're kind of hip and cool, you want to follow Paul. If you're erudite and sophisticated, Apollos is your guy. And so Paul is he's struggling with this. He's, he's experiencing some frustration. We know he's experiencing some frustration because he makes fun of them in the passage we read together. It's always funny when the Bible has people making fun of people. So we think it's supposed to be this kind of serious, like we read it and it's there, and then Paul goes and mocks someone, and we struggle with that sometimes, but he does. So there is a problem, and the problem is one of factions, and we need to be careful, because as soon as Paul mentions these names, Apollos, Paul, Peter, we could be tempted to think, well, maybe there's some sort of power competition there. And we live in a world where we hear a lot about power dynamics, and we might be inclined to read it that way. There's this power competition. you got Paul versus Apollos. But Paul wants to argue against that sort of way of framing things. Paul wants to say, no, 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 Apollos and I are working together. He watered, or I, I watered, and I plant, and he sows the seed, and, and someone else is going to come later and, 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 and experience the fruit of our work. We are all a part of the same ministry. We're all a part of the same mission. We're on the same team. This isn't Paul versus Apollos. This is Paul working alongside of Apollos. And so there's a different problem there. And Paul seems to think the problem is associated with different people's attachment to different philosophies. So he calls them out on their attachment to different kind of philosophical schools, what we might call worldly wisdom, sort of political ideologies, or different visions of what a good life looks like, whether that's through the accumulation of things or whether it's through the accumulation of wisdom. And so Paul kind of pushes back against all those things to ask the Corinthians to invite on how they are defined. Because these are really about ways they identify themselves, right? You associate with this apostle who appears to be wise in the ways of the world and qualified and credible glorious ministry or do you identify with this other sort of scrappy apostle are you drawn to you know the the flashy kind of ministry or do you appreciate something that's maybe on the bottom rung and so paul wants to challenge them about how they identify themselves and we see this in this question he raises go back to verse six in chapter four Remind ourselves what Paul has to say here. He says, I've applied all this to Apollos and myself for your benefit. He's been telling them in the early chapters how Apollos and he are working for the same goals. How they're stewards of the same ministry. And how they're committed to the same purposes. And how they're out to please God, not the Corinthians. Like, we're not here to satisfy you guys. We're looking for commendation from God. And he says, I've applied all this to Apollos and myself. I want you to see how we are 
joined in our mission and ministry and with our purposes to honor God so that you can overcome your factions and not be swayed by this philosophy or that perspective, that party line, that political affiliation or whatever it may be and aspire to please God as well. And that has to do with the way you define yourself. You find, define yourself by what you have achieved, by your affiliation with this particular group, or by your uh, sense of, of givenness to a particular philosophy, or do you define yourself through Jesus and realizing that you don't really accumulate anything, everything you have comes from Him. Everything you have comes from Him. So I've applied all this to Apollos and myself for your benefit, brothers and sisters, so that you may learn through us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. When Paul talks about what is written, he's frequently quoting scriptures. Up until this point, he's quoted the Old Testament a number of times, and every time it has been about why people shouldn't boast. And he applies that here, so that none of you will be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Because when we're operating in the accumulation mindset... Puffed up is kind of a good way to, like, that's a good way to talk about it, isn't it? Look what I've accumulated. Look what I've got. Look what I've earned. Look what I've gained. Look at the stature I've attained to. Like, it's very easy. You know, let me take a picture of it and put it on the internet or whatever it is. Look at me. And so Paul's saying, look. We want to resist that kind of look at me, I've accumulated, puffed up mentality and replace it with a different mentality so that none of you will be puffed up in favor of one against another for who sees anything different in you. And then he asked this question. You're boasting and what you, in your perspective or your party lines or your affiliations or your philosophies you're boasting in these things you're what you have but what do you have that you didn't receive what do you have that you did not receive the mind with which you study whatever school of thought you're committed to or you listen to the leaders that you are attracted to, the resources you have that you use to gain things. Like none of that comes to you apart from God's kindness. And we might be tempted to say, no, no, Paul, like I've got stuff and I worked hard for my stuff. And Paul might be, be, be want to respond by saying, well, yeah, no, I know you worked hard, but who gave you the strength? Because not everyone in the world has the strength. I know you studied hard for those credentials, but who gave you the mind to engage? Who puts breath in your lungs so that you can walk out your door every day and work and earn? Who sustains every moment of your being and your existence and he doesn't answer the question because the answer is obvious isn't it what do you have that you did not receive and the answer is everything that's why we're talking about regift this year in our generosity series 
because it's a way of reminding ourselves that everything we have is a gift, and that means everything we give away, whether it's money or time or energy or whatever it may be, is a re-gift of something God's already given to us. And the question we've got to think about today is, what would it look like to shift the way we define ourselves? Would it be countercultural? Would it push back against the media? Would it push back against the norms? Would it push back against the kind of the, the values of our workplaces? Would it push back against the values of our educational institutions if we were defined by what we give instead of what we have? By what we offer instead of what we accumulate? Would it change things? Would it change the witness of the church? I think we know the answer, don't we? I think we know the answer. So how do we define ourselves? And to make that point, Paul raises this question. What do you have that you did not receive? Now the next verse is where we begin to get an idea of where the Corinthians were getting their ideas. And this is the bit where Paul pokes a little fun. He says, already you've become kings and already you've become rich. Turns out he's drawing on some ancient material here. Uh, there was a group of folks called the Stoics. Stoics were the ones who who tried to be emotionally detached. So, you know, um, if you watch the Braves this, this, this month or, you know, this year, the manager's a guy named Brian Snitger. And this guy is stoic. Have you seen him? I mean, it doesn't matter what happens. He looks the same until they win in the last out. That's when he smiles. But until that point, the guy has the same look on his face the entire 10 months of baseball, right? He's a stoic. He's detached. He's in charge. He is not swayed. Nothing sets this guy off. Nothing unsettles him. Things go bad, he looks the same. Things go well, he looks the same. He's in charge. He's the king. And so in the ancient world, Stoics kind of thought about life like that. Like, you want to be the king? you got to get detached. you got to separate your emotions from your circumstances. Because things are going to be good sometimes. Things are going to be bad sometimes. you gotta, you got to detach. And if you detach, you'll be large and in charge, and you won't be affected. You won't be subject to fortune. You won't be subject to ups and downs. You won't be subject to those kinds of things. You'll be king. And that's where, where real riches lie. And so when Paul is kind of poking fun, we kind of think that he's dealing with this sort of excessive level of self-esteem among some of the Corinthians. We're not phased by the things that phase other people because we've given ourselves to this school of thought, kind of like party lines, you know, one analogy might be political parties in our day. Folks in this party think this way, folks in that party think that way. In the ancient world, you had these schools of thought. And it looks like stoicism. We're going to be stern and firm no matter what happens. And that's how you become a king in the world, large and in charge. And so Paul is kind of poking at him. He's like, I wish you were a king, and then we could all be kings together. Wouldn't that be great? But that's not reality, is it? Reality is suffering apostleship for Paul. Reality, listen to what he says here. I think God, this is verse 9, 
I think that God has exhibited us apostles, right? These are the guys who are supposed to be the front lines. They're the church planners. They're going where nobody's gone before. They're out there. They've raised their support, or maybe they've worked by their hands to, to be able to go places where the gospel hasn't gone. He says, and it's like, so they should be the heroes. And Paul says, we're not heroes. We're the spectacle of the kingdom of God. We've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to mortals. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are wise in Christ. He's kind of picking on their philosophy again. You think you're sharp. You think you're wise. Know it all. He's kind of, it's kind of a know-it-all thing. But what Paul realizes is that they have taken their identity in this sense of accumulated knowledge. They've taken their identity in this sense of accumulated wisdom. The sense of accumulated school of thought, worldly philosophy. And his point is, your identity is marked by you and what you've attained, and you boast in that. What would it look like to shift your identity as to being fundamentally not one who has or obtains, but one who receives gifts from God? Everything. All of it. Nothing left out. What would it look like? What would it be? How would it change things? If the people of God were defined not by what we have, but by what we give. What would it look like for today's church? To be oriented towards giving instead of accumulation. How would it affect our witness? Years and years, for years we've heard the whole uh, the little shtick about how the Sunday afternoon lunch crowd is the shift you can't give away if you're a waiter. Anybody remember this one? Hadn't heard it in a while. Restaurants were closed for a while. Turns out, now that people are eating out again, that's worse than ever. Heard someone say just a couple of days ago, yeah, that whole thing where Christians go to lunch on Sunday afternoons. They're the most demanding company customers, they're the worst tippers, and COVID has made it worse. We show up and people assume when Christians show up there's a sense of entitlement, there's a sense of you owe me this, and I'm not going to give you much. And with COVID, Everybody's tempers are a little shorter, and people are a little more, are a lot more fussy, and folks don't want to go to work anyway, and they especially don't want to go to work when the Christians show up. Why? Because we are defined culturally, in general, as entitled accumulators, not generous givers. So, what what would it look like in those settings, right? With someone who, you know, may not be a follower of Jesus. To just have a generous spirit at a restaurant table. Man, I know you're slammed. This is a hard day to be working in this business. Why don't you go catch that table before you do ours? Can you imagine a Christian doing something like that at Sunday lunch? <laughs> hey, you know what? Instead of 10%, 15 we'll do 20 or 25. 
Imagine what it would do to the witness of the church if we were defined by what we give instead of by what we have, by what we offer instead of what we accumulate. Crucial to that shift is this question. What do you have that you did not receive? If everything is gift, then everything is re-gift. If everything is God's benevolent kindness to us, then everything we have, everything we give, everything we offer, everything we are should also be benevolent re-gift. That's the thing Paul is inviting the Corinthians to see. So I wonder how we could shift from this accumulation identity to a generous identity. And I've been encouraged lately. I really have. I've been encouraged in this church. Just a couple of weeks ago, someone came to me and said, you know, we've been in a lot of churches. We've never felt more love than this church. Of all the places we've been, we felt more loved here than anywhere else. A few weeks before that, the staff met with Tara Davis. She's the executive director of the Friendship Mission. And she celebrated with us. I love it when people brag on you to me. And she bragged on our missions committee and how they have served food in the soup kitchens for years and how they have worked to repair apartments for people who need stable housing for extended periods of time so they can get into stable life situations. It was a joy for our staff to sit at a table in this room with Tara while she bragged on your generous spirit. Thursday night, some of us went to uh, the First Choice Banquet. First Choice is a, a women's medical center in Montgomery that we have partnered with and support. And uh, Sally Hudson's one of our volunteers there. Thank you, Sally, for that generous spirit. Four hours every week, touching people's lives. After the banquet Thursday night, Bethany Garth, the director of First Choice, came up to me and said, can I just say thank you for Austin Murphy? How many seven, seven Austin, are you 17? How many 17-year-olds show up for free to cut the grass of nonprofits in the area? I love going around town and having people say thank you for the generosity of your church. The answer is yes. Would it transform the witness of the church if we were defined not by what we have, but by what we offer? Not by what we accumulate? Not by our affiliations or the parties that we fall into? Not by our credentials, not by our things, not by the size of our building or our property or any of the things that we have in terms of assets, but by what we give. Would that change the witness of the church? I think we know the answer, don't we? So we're talking about re-gifting, aren't we? And I want to be clear, we're not just talking about our finances, we're talking about our whole lives. We're talking about how we use our time, how we use our energy. Like we can be generous with our finances and very stingy with our time and energy. Because sometimes, friends, and let's just be honest, it's easier to write a check or punch in an online donation form than to show up for four hours a week, isn't it? 
It's just easier. So in the back when you came in, there were two cards. And you should have gotten an email this week with digital versions of these. If you did not get an email with digital versions of these, then we have a problem in our communications area. You need to let me know or let Tanya know. Uh, but one of them is a financial commitment for 2022. And uh, you can fill that out and turn it in online. We'll send that email out again in a couple of days if you can't find the old one. Or you can fill one out and leave it in the gray basket in the back this afternoon or today or next week. The other one is our serve team forms for 2022. And this has as many opportunities for serving in ministry. And can I just say, let's talk about serving and not volunteering. Can we just agree that we'll stop asking for volunteers? Because volunteers sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? I've got some time that I will volunteer if I have space in my schedule for it. <laughs> what if we make a sacrifice? What if we say, you know what? I'm going to make time to go serve the kingdom of God in this way. It's a different kind of language, isn't it? There's something else happening there. There's a little, a little more Jesus in the language of serving and, than there is volunteering. So we have serve teams. We have serve teams that function inside the wall and serve teams that functions outside the walls of this building. So if you want to join Sally at First Choice and go help people who are at the lowest time of their life with the greatest anxiety and the greatest fear on the back, you can mark that and we'll connect you. You might be the first voice that someone in a crisis hears, and when they hear the love and compassion in your voice, it could literally save lives. Literally. That's what it looks like to move from what do we have to what do we give. We have time, friends. Let's give it. So many things can't happen unless we serve. Children's church doesn't happen unless people serve. Youth ministry doesn't happen unless people serve. Missions doesn't happen unless people serve. I'm so grateful for a team of folks who, do, who work in congregational care, who write notes and make phone calls and visits and touch base, who take a meal. It doesn't work unless we're re-gifting everything that Jesus has given to us. It doesn't work without people who are generous, not only financially, but also with time and energy and talents and skills. What if we were defined by what we give instead of by what we have? Here's what would happen. We would increasingly live in such a way as to both embody and commend the gospel. I think that's what Paul's getting at in this last paragraph that we read together. God's made us apostles a spectacle to the world. Wasn't Jesus a spectacle on the cross? As though sentenced to death. Wasn't Jesus sentenced to death on the cross? We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. In the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We grow weary for the work of our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. We have become like the rubbish of the world 
the dregs of all things to this very day. And what he is saying is, we apostles are not defined by our reputation. We are not defined by what we've attained. We are not defined by our income. We are not defined by any affiliation except one affiliation, and that affiliation was the Lord Jesus Christ who looked like a fool on a cross outside Jerusalem, hung naked in the air, bleeding to death, who was a spectacle of the empire, but who though beaten and weary when reviled offered blessing a life of generosity a life defined by self-giving love by serving by offering Jesus to our neighbors and the nations, to one another, that sort of life embodies everything that Jesus did on the cross. That's why generosity, friends, isn't about, hey, here's your obligation, pay up so we can keep the lights on. Generosity is about, hang on a second, my life as a whole is a gift from God in Christ. My life as a whole and everything I have is a gift from the man whose arms were spread, whose hands and feet were nailed to wooden beams, who was mocked, who was reviled, who was beaten, who was tortured, who bled, who suffered, and who prayed, Father, forgive them. Brothers and sisters, that's a generous spirit. And that Lord Jesus has been raised and exalted. And he now reigns at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And he is filled to overflowing with generosity to his people. And he offers us his life. Do you want his life? Do you want his life? I'm guessing there's some folks in the room that need to experience that life in a new way. Maybe for the first time. Maybe in a deeper way. Maybe you want to just take a second and just give thanks. Give thanks to Jesus for the gift of himself. Give thanks to Jesus for his unfailing perfect love. Give thanks to Jesus that he didn't come into this world defined by what he could obtain, but defined by everything he gave, including his life for your life. So that we could be forgiven, so that we can be restored, so that we can be whole, so that we can be generous with the resources he's given us, with the time he's given us, with the energy he's given us, with the gifts he's given us, with the talents he's given us. And when we do, the world will know that our God is the real God. Because he takes accumulators and transforms us by his grace into givers. He takes self-oriented sinners 
and transforms us by his grace into people who embody the beauty of the glory of the love of Christ. What if we were defined by what we give instead of what we have? It would make us Christians. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.